The New Testament reading is taken from Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbour as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbour? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place, saw him and passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbour to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. That's one of the best known of Jesus' stories, I, I reckon. Top three at the very least. And it's not just famous uh, amongst Christians, it's also famous in our culture, isn't it? Which is why if you do what I did uh, earlier on in the week and you Google Good Samaritan, you will come up with 31 million hits. Everything from hospitals named like this one in Cincinnati, Ohio, to organizations like the Samaritan's Purse, the name of which will ring a bell to any of you who have done a shoebox for Operation Christmas Child. Or there's news reports like uh, this one about a paraglider who uh, last December uh, got caught by a gust of wind and was smashed into a dry stone wall. And he broke both his ankles uh, and his back. Um, And he was in sub-zero temperatures and would have died if it weren't for the fact that that a walker came by. And the headline reads... Buxton Paraglider finds Good Samaritan who helped save his life. But one thing that kind of holds all these things together that they have in common is they all present the moral of the story of the Good Samaritan as being perform an act of love, be a good neighbor. That's what it means to be a good neighbor. Jesus tells this incredible story and he says, Go, do likewise. Bam! Let's sing a song, have a prayer. Go on and do it. But what if I were to tell you that this isn't the main, Jesus' main purpose in telling us this story? Don't don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to undercut the brilliant work that Fiona and her team are doing the Cap Debt Center and and the work that many of the rest of us are doing in other ways uh, to engage in compassion ministry. Jesus really wants us to be about that. We'll get to that. But look again, firstly, the context where we've got a self-justifying lawyer he comes verse 25 
uh, to Jesus. Uh, and he tries to put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, it could be that this expert in the law is trying to test Jesus as in test that he's like the real deal. But so often in Luke's gospel, the pattern is that when experts in the law and religious leaders come to Jesus to question him, what they're trying to do is actually they're trying to trap him, catch him in a trap. But Jesus is going to spring the trap, turn it around, and he's actually going to trap this lawyer. That's what we're going to see. Slight tangent. Just to be clear, all of Jesus' traps are loving traps. He's trying to wake the person up, shake them, stir them uh, to to see the reality of of, of the spiritual realities that that, that he wants them to to see. So if you find yourself trapped this morning uh, with what his life is throwing at you, with what you think God is doing, then please see that, that all of Jesus' traps are loving traps. Now, most of the commentators think that this guy here, this lawyer, he, he's trying to trap Jesus into showing that he doesn't really hold the law, the Old Testament law in high regard. So he's expecting, well, actually what we might expect Jesus to do in answer to this question and, and say, oh, no, 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 it's not all about keeping the law and being good. No, you just have to accept me as your personal savior. That's how you inter- inherit eternal life. But Jesus doesn't take the bait, does he? Instead, he says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Now, this guy actually, he responds really wisely with a well-known summary of the biblical moral code. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, bingo. (laughs) Correct first time. So go on then. What are you waiting for? (laughs) Go and do it. And you will live. It's a brilliant move. Jesus, he says to this guy, he says, go on then, you, you, you say you love the law, but do you keep it? Do you love God with every fiber of your being every second of the day? And do you meet the needs of your neighbor with all the joy and the energy and the care with which you meet your own needs? God's given you everything, hasn't he? So that's the kind of life that you owe him. And so if you can offer him a life like that, then you will merit eternal life. I like to think of what's happening here in Luke 10 as as like an Olympic high jump final. Um, and, And Jesus, he's taking the bar on the high jump and he is raising it, isn't he? Impossibly high. And the lawyer, he sees that. Uh, and so he goes, can we negotiate, maybe? <laughs> Let's talk about this. Uh, can we just bring this down to a more manageable height? Or as verse 29 puts it, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, but who is my neighbor? I don't know if you've ever heard of Robert Murray McShane, that he was a, an amazing Scottish minister from the 19th century. And before you say it, I'm not saying he was amazing because he was Scottish, all right? He was amazing because he said things like this. And then by God's spirit, he he lived them out. 
Self-righteousness is the largest idol of the human heart. The idol which man loves most and God hates most. Dearly beloved, you will always be going back to this idol. You're always trying to be something in yourself. To gain God's favor by thinking little of your sin. Or by looking to your repentance, tears and prayers. Or by looking to your religious exercises. Or by looking to your graces, the Spirit's work in your heart. Beware of false Christs. Study sanctification to the utmost, but make not a Christ of it. Hasn't McShane put his finger there on this lawyer's issue? He is guilty of falling for the idol of self-righteousness. He wants to justify himself, to show he's one of the good guys. And if we're honest, don't we too? The lawyer had set his limits. I mean, the truth be told, he was probably a pretty good neighbor to his friends and his family. And if he was a good Jew, which I think there's no reason to doubt, it was built into Judaism that he had to care for the poor, so he probably actually gave some money also. But he'd set his limits just as we all do. Which is why Jesus tells, secondly, the story of the Good Samaritan, to show that there should be no limits to our neighbor love. Uh, Some of us know this story really well. There's this guy, and he's uh, traveling this mountainous road down from Jerusalem. So he's probably a Jew. And he's on his way to Jericho. And on the way, he's attacked, and he's beaten, and he's robbed, and he's left for, well, left half dead. And then along come this priest and this Levite. Levite would have been one of the temple workers who helped a priest with their job. So so they're Jews, and they had an obligation to help their brother in the road. But they don't. They just pass by on the other side, possibly because it was extremely dangerous to stop in this desolate road that was notorious for robbers and bandits. And then a Samaritan came along the road, and you probably know from Sunday school, if you're in Sunday school, in fact, if you're in Sunday school here in the Northeast, this would have been represented to you as, you know, like Newcastle United supporter and a Sunderland supporter. But this, this was no heated tribal rivalry. No, these guys absolutely hated one another, Jews and Samaritans. The Jews in particular thought Samaritans were defiled half-breeds, who God should not even forgive if they repent. In fact, the worst thing you could ever call a Jew was a Samaritan. As we see in John chapter 8, when Jesus gets the the religious leaders all upset with him, and and, and they get so upset they can't think of anything else to say, but, oh, you, you, you Samaritan. So it would be perfectly justifiable for this Samaritan to look at this guy who, who in all likelihood absolutely hated him and pass on by on the other side too. But he doesn't, does he? No, verse 33, when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal and he brought him to an inn and took care of him. And next day he took out two denarii 
and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of them. Whatever you spend, no expense uh, too much, I will repay you when I come back. What is Jesus doing through this story? He was giving a radical answer to the question, what does it look like? What does it mean to love my neighbor? Jesus answers by showing us that will involve loving the person who we, will, we are least likely to want to help. I mean, we set limits on the who, don't we? We instinctively tend to limit who we will exert ourselves for. Uh, we'll, we'll do it for, for friends, for family, people like us, people who we like, uh, maybe even for people who we think are really deserving. For an example, a pastor friend of mine once ministered to a man who was in prison. And when the guy was released from prison, his family wouldn't take him back home, really struggling to get a job. And, and so this pastor friend of mine, he took him into his home. Now, as you hear that, I suspect many of us will be thinking, well, I'd like to think that in the same circumstances, I, I would be willing to do something like that. But what if I was to tell you that the guy was a convicted child molester? Do we still feel the same way? And of course, if you've got kids at home, that'd be a really foolish thing to do. But by having a Samaritan pick up a Jew from the road, Jesus is saying to us, you know who your neighbor is? You know who you should love, who you must love? Anyone in your path, anyone, absolutely anyone. I wonder who this week we might have walked on by, someone in a vulnerable situation, stuck in their weakness, and, and we've walked on by, whether it's at work or, or, or out in the street or maybe even here at church. Jesus refused to allow this law expert or us to, to limit the implications of his command to love not just in terms of the who, but also in terms of the how. I mean, we limit the how, don't we, as well? I mean, I can't think of how many times I've been in a situation where someone has needed something. I've thought, oh, I don't have time to give to this. I start my day with my diary very fixed on my phone and in my mind. And then, you know, I know exactly what I need to do today so I don't have time to stop or, or I barely even see the people the Lord throws across my path and their needs. But that's not how the Samaritan responds, does he? No, he goes out of his way to meet this guy's dire needs with loving deeds. He stopped and in doing so he took the risk of being attacked by the same robbers. He arranged first aid and transportation. He arranged a roof over his head and ongoing medical care. He bore the cost of the time commitment and he absorbed the financial cost too. And Jesus is saying to us through him, don't you dare limit my command. There must be no limits to your neighbor live, neighbor love. And so Jesus asked this lawyer in verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? How much as it pains him? I mean, this guy can't, he, can, he can't spit out the word Samaritan, can he? He 
can't, can't bear to say it, so he says, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus says to him, and to us too, well, go, do likewise. Which brings us, thirdly, to the challenge. Love your neighbor. For make no mistake, Jesus is clearly saying here that we must care for people's physical, material, and economic needs, whoever they are. That's not an optional extra. Never is in the Bible. Jesus is never content that as individual Christians or as a, as a church family that we, we would gather here and we would sing and we would pray and we would have fellowship together and we would listen to God's word and yet ignore his heart of compassion for the vulnerable in society. And so in Matthew 25, Jesus says that on the last day he's going to come back and he's going to separate out the sheep from the goats, the true believers from the hypocrites and counterfeits. And he's going to say to the goats, he's going to say, I was hungry, you didn't feed me. I I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you uh, didn't welcome me. Naked, you didn't clothe me. I was in prison, you didn't even visit me. And they'll go, well, when did that happen? When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked? When were you in prison and we didn't minister to you? And Jesus will say, because you treated them like that. You've treated me like that. Your attitude to the poor and the vulnerable reveals your attitude to me. And so he finishes by saying, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Those are strong words, aren't they? And we need to be careful here. Jesus is not saying that doing social work is the way to get to heaven, no. But he is saying that a life poured out in deeds of loving service to people in need is the inevitable sign of real faith, that we have a relationship with him. Which is why it says in James 2, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Big challenge. And at this point, we might be thinking, well, I don't have that much to give. How on earth can I take this challenge on and love my neighbors, whoever they might be? Well, I wonder if it's the downtrodden and despised Samaritan rather than the more wealthy and prestigious Jew who Jesus paints as the hero of the story here in order to say to us, you've got power in your hands my friends. You've got power in your hands. You don't think you do because everything about our culture presents to us a picture of the things we lack, the things we don't have, so that we just don't see the gifts that God has given us to use not just for ourselves but in service of others. So I think Jesus is saying to us here, he's saying, it doesn't matter who you are and, and, and what you've got. We've, we've all got some power in our hands. You've got 
abilities in your hands, talents, opportunities, connections. You've got some money in your hands, maybe only some, but you've got money. And you've got time, we've got quite literally, many of us have got quite literally time on our hands. Most of us have got something to give, something to offer. It's not always money that solves all the problems. In fact, it rarely is. It may simply be offering a listening ear to someone who is walking through a dark time at this moment. It may be giving companionship to somebody who's struggling to do life on their own. It might just be giving a word of encouragement to someone who's just so down on themselves all the time. So find someone, some people who you have the power to help and offer yourselves, offer help to them. I wonder who that might be for you. I think it might be different people for us, for each one of us. But I really want you to think about that. Who might the Lord be calling you to help who's in a position of weakness and vulnerability like the man on the road? I've got to wrap this up. I suspect if I did so, if I just kind of landed things right here, I might leave you just with a whole heap of guilt, tons of guilt. So I need you to know that if we were to leave this morning going, ah, yet another thing I have to do that I've got to fit into my life. How am I going to love all these people that might come across my path? With guilt as your motivation, you will burn out so, so fast. So let's pull back and see, fourthly and finally, the great Samaritan. Folks, anyone who heard Jesus' story in his day, they would know that this Samaritan had Unlike the Jews who passed by, they had no obligation, no moral, legal, <clears throat> cultural obligation to stop and help. So why did he? Well, it's in verse 33, isn't it? He was moved by compassion. And the word in the original language, in the, in the, in the Greek there is splagma. It's a great word. Try it out in your mouth, splagma. Love it. But, but what, it, what it means is, Literally, being moved so deeply that you feel it in your gut, the very, the very depth of your being. And in the New Testament, it is used most regularly to describe the emotional state of Jesus Christ. You see? The Samaritan is moved by the love of Christ. And here's the point. <laughs> According to the Bible, we are all spiritually and morally bankrupt. We are dead in our sins and transgressions. You are like that person on the road. We all are. And yet Jesus came by and he impoverished himself for us. And until you see that Jesus Christ was the great Samaritan for you, you will not find the motivation to be one for others. If you think, actually, I'm a good person and, and, and God will accept me because I'm a good person. You think, actually, I need to, need to help others because... That's what will make me good. It's the good thing. It's the right thing to do. You'll struggle to find the motivation to sustain your social care. And, and you'll find yourself in the end worn out, saying, oh, I picked myself up by the bootstraps. Why can't they? But if you're a Christian who understands the gospel, what a game changer. 
you will know that even though you were lying on the road in a pool of your own blood, half dead, Jesus Christ, with no obligation at all to do so, he came and he poured out his riches so that you could be bandaged up and transported and fed and housed and healed and made whole. And that is the only thing, the only thing that gives you the motivation, the, the motor, if you like, to be a good Samaritan and love your neighbor. Whoever they might be, whatever their needs might be, however they might be thrown across your path, until Jesus comes and returns home to say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Now come, come and share in your master's happiness. So let me finish with another quote from Robert Murray McShane again. Preaching in the 1930s, he said this. Now, dear Christians, some of you pray night and day to be made branches of the true vine. You pray to be made all over in the image of Christ. If so, you must like him, you must be like him in giving. Though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor. Objection. My money is my own. Answer. Christ might have said, my blood is my own, my life is my own. No man forceth it from me. Then where would we have been? Objection. The poor are undeserving. Answer. Christ might have said the same thing. They are wicked rebels against my father's law. Shall I lay down my life for these? I will give to the good angels. But no, he gave his blood for the undeserving. Objection. The poor may abuse it. Answer. Christ might have said the same. Yea, with far greater truth. Christ knew that thousands would trample his blood under their feet, that most would despise it, that many would make it an excuse for sinning more, yet he gave his own blood. Oh, my dear Christians, if you would be like Christ, give much, give often, give freely to the vile and the poor, the thankless and the undeserving, Christ is glorious and happy, and so will you be. It is not your money I want, but your happiness. Remember his own word. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Let's pray before we close our service and song. Just going to give you a moment there, some massive challenges. And as I say, I suspect they might be different for each one of us in terms of our life circumstances. So let's take a moment to pray that through, to do business with the Lord ourselves. And then we'll sing again.
Oh, Father God, oh, we do so want to love you with all of our heart, mind, strength, and soul. We want to love you wholeheartedly that we might be filled with your love and have the power in our hands and in our hearts and in our minds to love others as we love ourselves without any sense of trying to use that service to justify ourselves in your eyes or others. So please, help us to grasp the full dimensions of Christ's love for us, the breadth, the height, the length, the depth, that we might know this love that surpasses all knowing. It's a divine mystery, Father. But we pray that you would fill us with this love and that you would help us to serve you and others out of it. This day and in the days to come and until the, for the rest of our life until you come to bring us home. And we pray that in doing so, we would be not only doing your will, but we would do great good in this world for the needy and the vulnerable and the undeserving. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.